Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Before we get started, uh, you should see somewhere around you some white pieces of paper. So we've been in this 30-minute uh, theology series, and one of the things that I've realized through it is almost every week after the message, I'm standing around talking, and there's questions about the message or questions about how it pertains to this or that, and and I realized that trying to fit these subjects, like last week we talked about the end times, and trying to fit something that literal, there are seminary classes that are two semesters long to cover that, and I try to do it in 30 minutes. So there's going to be questions that come up, and so one of the things I'd like to do at the end of this series is kind of take a list of questions that you guys might have that you can write down, or if you think of them during the week, you can text them to me, um, however you want to get them to me, and almost do like a uh, Q&A. So it's not going to be a live Q&A because I won't have time to prepare for your questions. <laughs> but, but I want to give you um, a couple of weeks, so this week and next week, for you to write down any questions that have come up from week one, kind of recapping. We talked about you know, how the Bible is our, is our sole authority, and, and uh, we talked about the things around that, like reason and tradition and experience and how that shapes our theology. But uh, for example, one of the questions I got after that one was, well, how do we know, how, how are the books of the Bible actually decided? You know, we didn't really talk about that in the message. So there's there's questions off that we talked about um, how sin is not only forgiven but can be eliminated and, and Jesus was the pardon and the power. We talked about salvation and uh, prevenient grace. We've talked about the end times. We've talked about women in ministry, the role of uh, theology inside of marriage. We've talked about all these issues. So at any point, if you've had a question or if you want to go back and listen to those messages, they're online. To I just want you to write them down because I really want to, the inspiration for this series is the fact that there's a, a, for a lot of my life, I grew up believing things. And then when I got challenged on those things, I didn't know why I believed them. And so I really want to answer the questions of why we believe what we believe and how is it backed up in the Bible and things like that. So uh, I encourage you, I challenge you guys to ask some questions. You can write them down on those pieces of paper and drop them in this box that's on the table over here. And like I said, you could also text them to me if you think of them during the week or anything like that. So uh, with that said, I want to kind of get into today's message. And I want to start off with uh, 
this question. What if I told you in the Bible there were multiple gods? My hope would be that your heresy radar would be like, wait a minute, <laughs> like we have one God that we worship and serve. So the, if somebody gets up and they start teaching, hey, we're talking about theology. There's more than one God. I'm hoping that you would say, no, uh, no, 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 <laughs> right? Like, okay, I get it. There's stuff that I don't have a full understanding of the Bible. I'm still growing. I'm learning. But there's one thing I know that there is one God, right? There's one God that we serve and worship and love and have surrendered our life to. But And so if I stand up here and I say, hey, there's more than one God, I would hope that you would say, no, there's not, right? And I want to kind of start off this way. I think that that wording, there's more than one God, is uh, a little bit unfair, and we'll kind of get there. But I want to start off with that statement that, that when you look at the Bible, there are some passages that seem to point to the fact that there are other gods besides our Creator, God of the universe. Um, it all kind of stems from the very this Hebrew word that is at the very beginning of Genesis. The first uh, verse in the Bible says that God created the heaven and earth, right? In the beginning, God created. That word for God there is Elohim, all right? It's this Hebrew word that means God. Now, later, if you read it from Genesis 1 to 11, you will see on numerous occasions that they talk about Elohim, who is an evil ruler in Babylon. So there's an evil God. It's the same word. So when Moses is writing the book of Genesis, we believe Moses wrote it. When Moses is writing the the first five books of the Bible, right, there's this sense of Moses' thought process is we have the one God that we serve, but there's other gods out there, which is different from the way we believe and think, right? So it seems kind of unusual or backwards, but, but if you follow it, I mean, we've heard the phrase, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, even God of Gods. So where does that phrase come from? Well, it comes from that Elohim word. You can go into the Old Testament and see the, the Israelites, God's people talk about Elohim of Elohim. He is the God of gods, right? God is this, there's, there's all these gods, there's all these forces, there's all these powers, but there is one creator God that has always been, that created everything, that's, that's outside of our grasp. It's outside of our understanding. It's unfathomable, right? There's this one creator God, and he is the God of these other gods. But this goes on even into the New Testament, and Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 8. He's, he's kind of, there's this, I guess, this internal debate going on inside of God with God's people, and they're like, hey, there's these other people that don't follow Jesus that have sacrificed food to idols, and we're hungry, so we're going to eat it. And there's some other Christians that are like, no, 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 you can't eat that food. It's been sacrificed to idols. It's cursed, right? And so Paul is addressing this internal debate. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. It says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. So there's no such thing as idols. These idols are, they're wood, they're metal. They have no power. They're not real. They can't heal you. They can't even damn you. There's nothing about them that is like, hey, they have power. Idols aren't real. And there is no God but one, right? We talked about no God but one. For though there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, so there's things that might claim to be God, but they're so-called gods, 
But then he goes on right after that in the same breath, the same verse says, so there might be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So wait a minute, Paul, you're saying that there's, there's idols are nothing, they're so-called gods, but hey, there is gods and lords. Yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things come from, or for whom we all exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul's addressing this, and he's saying, hey, you can go eat that food because those idols aren't real. And there's these so-called gods that may or may not be real, and there are gods and lords. So he's saying there's these other things outside of our one true God. Now, we worship the one true God, but there's something else out there. And I think that, that there's this sense of, of there's these other beings that is outside of our realm. And this is where things get weird, right? And, and last week we kind of talked about the end times, and a lot of times these things are not talked about because they might seem funny or weird. Well, if we can have the, the guests bring in the snakes now, we're going to... I'm not going to handle any snakes. That was a joke. Okay. So the, the, it seems weird, but this is, this is biblical. There's a biblical view of another force outside of our world, another realm. And I think that it's important that as we study theology, that we have to know that there is an enemy out there that might, we might not perceive in a way that we, I think we should. Uh, I kind of want to have, it can get pretty deep and kind of confusing, but there's a, um, an organization called The Bible Project, and we've watched a couple of their videos here before, and they have a whole series. You can go to their website, you can go on YouTube, and it's all completely free. You can download it to your computer for free, but they have a series on spiritual beings, and the, in one of those videos, they kind of talk about the origin of the, the things outside of this realm. And so I'm going to play that video because it's about six minutes long, but I think it gives a very clear presentation of what we're talking about here. For most of human history, people have believed in some kind of spiritual realm that exists alongside the world as we know it. Right, and the biblical authors are no exception. Yeah, for them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's space as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the Bible, they're called the sons of God, or the rulers and authorities, or even sometimes the divine council. So that sounds really important. What does the divine council do? Well, they're introduced in Genesis chapter 1, where they're called the host of heaven, that is, the sun, moon, and stars. And there, they're also called signs, meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status. Yeah, so in Genesis 1, God appoints them to rule over the day and night. Exactly. And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite King Ahab. Or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. But why does God need a team? If he's powerful enough to create the whole universe, he could surely rule it without any help. Well, he doesn't need them. 
but apparently the God of the Bible wants to share authority with others. Oh, right. God shares his rule with human partners on earth. And so, in the same way, there's a parallel story of God sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners. Yes, that is, until it all falls apart in a twin rebellion. So you have humans who want to rule on earth on their own terms. So they start building their own nation using their own definitions of good and evil. Yeah, the famous story of the building of Babylon. But check this out. When biblical authors like Moses or Isaiah looked back at the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion, but also a spiritual rebellion. What was this spiritual rebellion? Well, there were members of the divine council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God, and they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the creator. And so Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. And so God scatters the people from Babylon into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. Yes, and this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice. Human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. Yeah, when humans give their allegiance to these powers, it leads to a world like ours. Right, and the best example of this is the story of the Exodus, where we're told that the Egyptian genocide of the Israelites was inspired by Pharaoh and by the gods of Egypt. That's really intense. But it's not the end of the story. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and its gods, he invited them to become his covenant partners and learn a different way of ruling the world. And they agree to it, but in the end they don't honor the partnership. They give their allegiance to other gods. And so this leads to their exile in Babylon, where they become slaves once again to a foreign nation and their spiritual rulers, awaiting a new exodus into freedom. And this is where the story of Jesus picks up. He said he was here to rescue the world and take it back from the rebels. Which rebels? The human ones or the spiritual ones? Exactly. For Jesus, it was all connected. When he marched into Jerusalem for Passover, he was announcing the ultimate exodus. He was there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities, and he did it by giving up his life. So this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities triumphing over them by the cross. Yes, Jesus condemned our evil by allowing the rebels to unleash all their hate and evil on him. But then he overcame it with the power of his love and resurrection life. And then Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. Now the ultimate human and divine partner. This is really good news. Yeah, and it's why the apostles started inviting everyone to give their allegiance to the risen Jesus to discover freedom and a new way to be human. Now, while Jesus gained a decisive victory over the rebel powers, he didn't destroy them. They're still around causing problems. Yes, and in fact, they are the problem. The apostles said that humanity's real enemy is never another human. Rather, it's the spiritual powers that animate our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and violence. Ah, so when I see people hurting other people. Behind it is the divine council gone rogue. How do you deal with this kind of enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul said we can resist by putting on the character traits of Jesus like armor, faithfulness, justice, and peace. 
And he said that our only weapon is the word of God. That is, the biblical story of good news that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life and love. So when I, I use the, the word gods, it's a little unfair. Really, there's these spiritual beings. There's this other realm. And, and it it's, points to the amazing uh, Yahweh, which is another Hebrew word that they use to separate the, our Elohim from the other ones. It, it, it elevates God to the status of, of transcendence, which any old ancient people, even our people, when we think about a God, if we were to create a God, this God would be uh, over and above everything. But the God of the Bible is that. He's over and above, outside of everything. But he chose to give away, to delegate some power and authority to these spiritual beings and to humanity. See, we, we serve a God that is 100% relational. He cares about us as people. He cares. He didn't have to do that, but but everything about him, everything about our creation, is about this relationship. And there's that's this this beautiful picture of the God that we serve is not just this God that is uh, sets something into motion or this puppeteer. It's it's a God that wants and to be in relationship with us. There's this this hope and this promise that that one of the the, the greatest things that we can face is loneliness. And there's this fact that the God that created us never wants wants us to be alone, but he is 100% relational. He gives this counsel, this divine counsel, the free will. He gives us this free will. And through this power, through this relationship with him, there's this kind of this twin rebellion we heard the video talk about, right? And if you go and you read the Genesis story, it's really interesting because I've always gone and I've read it through the lens of humanity's fall, right? Humans Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit, and you see this fall of man. But if you go and you read Genesis 1 through 11, there's all these mirrored pictures of a spiritual fall as well. And, and through this study, and I, I kind of, it's a theory, right? We don't really know, but I believe this. And I think that the Bible points to the fact that in the garden, there's this snake-like creature that the word used in Hebrew is seraphim, which we later see seraphim praising God. So there's this divine council member in the garden as a snake, right? And this snake gets the humanity to fall. And then God shows up and curses the snake and the humans. And you keep reading later on and you see that there's these divine counsel people that have relations with human beings and there's another fall and it creates these giant creatures and it's one of the most weird, confusing things in the Bible you can go read in Genesis 6. But, but it kind of paints this picture of all these ancient people groups and these ancient people groups believed that they were founded by these warrior human god-like giants, Right? And the Bible is saying, well, if that's true, then those human godlike giants were fallen divine counsel, or they come from fallen divine counsel. So there's this picture of a fall from a spiritual realm at the same time as a fall of the human realm. And they almost over, overlap. And I say all this because I want to I lay this foundation because I... 
I'm going to read from, uh, we talked about this book after church with a few people in week one, but this is uh, the book Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And he kind of uh, gets into the mind, if you will, of two demons who are writing letters back and forth. And it's an uh, incredibly fascinating book. But at the very beginning, in the preface of the book, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or a magician with the same delight. So basically, when it comes to this other realm, this other dimension, C.S. Lewis gets at it, the biblical authors get at it. I think they point to the fact that we as humans err either on the side of having this over-fascination with demons. We almost overstate it, if you will. Uh, An example of this would be uh, you're on your way to work and your car dies and you get mad and you blame the devil, right? The devil has caused my car to die. He's ruining my day. I'm not going to make it to work. And you're having this conversation with me and you're saying the, the devil has just He's just, he messed up my car this morning. And I'm like, oh man, well, did you figure out what was wrong? Yeah, it ran out of gas. That's not the devil, right? Like maybe you should put some gas in it, right? So we have a tendency. There can be times in life where we, we blame stuff on the, the devil and it's not really on the devil, right? And so there's this instance of being overly fascinated you can even see this when you get into like witchcraft and some things like that and the sorcery. And there's this stuff of saying, hey, you know what? There's an over-fascination with it. But I think on the most part, and this is a generalization, so kind of go with me. But I think on the most part, we err on the other side. Well, we don't want to give them any thought. We don't want to believe in them. We don't want to think they have any power. And it, and it comes from really... We've been blessed to live in an age where we understand more of the world than any other generation before us. An example of this, uh, there's a, uh, a pastor who wrote a whole message on depression, right? And he kind of unpacks it and he has all these articles. I'm not going to get into all that because we don't have time, but he basically says there's four causes of depression and he has got all kinds of scientific stuff to help him get through this. Okay? But the first one is physical right? There's a physical cause of depression, in which case the remedy would be medicine or food or rest. Another cause would be uh, psychological, in which case the remedy would be love, affirmation, or support. The third cause would be uh, something moral. You feel guilty for something you did, or maybe you're angry, and, or there's a broken relationship, and there's this guilt and this shame or something that comes from that, and that moral cause has caused this depression, in which case you would need forgiveness or reconciliation. And we, in the Western world, America, the church, have a tendency to stop there because we can see scientifically that there can be physical, psychological, and moral things that lead to depression. But there's a fourth cause, and that's a demonic cause, a spiritual oppression cause. And we have a tendency to stop before we ever get there. Now, it could be a mix and match of all these. I'm not saying it's just one of these or the other, and depression's complex. But what I want to see is use this as an example of saying, hey, there is a spiritual realm. There is evil forces around us, and we have to be aware of it. If we're going to move forward, we have to be aware of it if we're going to battle it. We have to realize that 
when Paul is talking in that Corinthian passage and he says there's other gods, for us, we want to say, yeah, there are other gods. You know, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Or whatever the idol may be. We, we take those gods and we take all the spiritualness out of them. And those gods that he's talking about are power, that it's lust, it's greed, and we give it all these worldly idols that we know. But I think Paul is saying, yeah, you're not wrong, but it's more than that. It's more than that. There's an evil realm that we must be made aware of. So that leads us to today's passage, and that's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Now, I'm going to read it, and and you should recognize it if you've spent time in the church at any point in your life. Um, Even if you haven't, your grandma probably prayed these over you at some point in time, so you know that the the armor of God, right? But Ephesians 6, verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the devil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flaming arrows from the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, when unpacking this passage, uh, I found a message from uh, Tim Keller, and he kind of breaks it down in three different ways. And so I'm going to talk about it a little bit differently than he does, but I think the way he breaks it down is helpful. So what we're going to look at is who do we fight, what do we fight, and how do we fight? So breaking it down in these three categories, who do we fight, What do we fight and how do we fight? The first thing, who do we fight? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are fighting a spiritual power. It's not against flesh and blood. And it's really interesting because it talks about, Paul uses this word here where he says the struggle. He's got all kinds of vocabulary that you can go and and study the way Paul would talk and write. And rarely does he use this word for struggle. In other places where he talks about battling and struggling, he uses words that would represent like somebody shooting an arrow at you, right? And that's a battle. Or maybe a sword fight, and that's a battle. But in this particular passage, the word kind of broken down is like a hand-to-hand combat, like a wrestling. So if you think about it, like if you're in a battle with an army, or some kind of war, right? You've got this where you're far apart and you're fighting each other and you're a little bit closer. At that point where you're hand-to-hand combat, it's like life or death. This is the biggest struggle, the most intense battle, and it's going on and you're fighting for your life. 
And Paul is saying that when we're in these moments, we're fighting for our life. We're not fighting flesh and blood. Now, he's not saying that we don't ever fight flesh and blood. I mean, right, he was thrown in prison by people. That's flesh and blood, right? And we know, believe me, if you're married, you know that you've had a fight with flesh and blood. <laughs> Amen? Maybe some flesh and blood was shed. I'm not going to go there. But, no, but we know that there's, there's this sense of real evil that happens in the real world, and there's, there's consequences, and people need to face those consequences. I think about the yesterday in El Paso and this mass shooting that happened yet again and the fact that that this is evil flesh and blood evil that really happened a person really did that but what, what Paul is saying that is when you see evil like that manifest that it's not just that person acting but they are participating with this dark spiritual realm they are participating in something that is a above, beyond, behind them. There's something that's, that is stimulating their thoughts, pushing them forward that is outside of our realm. That's something more than we can think about. There's something more than we, we perceive on the surface. There's something behind that evil that is not of this realm. So we have to understand that our battle is not against our spouse. Our battle is not against our, our boss. Our battle is not against our kids, right? That there's spiritual things outside of this realm. And, and there's this whole vast, like I said, there's all this stuff about corporate, like there, if there's evil being done, like genocide or the Holocaust and stuff like that. But what I want to kind of focus in on today for this message is on the individual level. Like you and I, when there is evil around us lurking, that we have to understand that our battle, our battle is not against that person, but there's things influencing them. Sin comes as an influence. It's a temptation. So who do we fight? Not flesh and blood, but the spiritual realm. One might say the devil. So who are we fighting? Spiritual realm, what do we fight is the devil's schemes, right? It says that we have to stand guard against the, the devil's schemes. This word that where he uses schemes literally means it's wiles, it's methodia, right? Like method, right? So the devil's got these methods. He's got these strategies. There's more than one way for the devil to kind of attack us. And so this is part that I think is, is really interesting. And, and you could talk about, I mean, there's books that are thousands of pages long talking about this, but I'm gonna highlight two of them because I think it can speak to us on that individual level. And I first want to highlight the fact, or I want to ask the question, what is the devil's name? Anybody in here know what the devil's name is? There's lots of different names. And the reason there's lots of different names is because none of them are an actual name. They're all titles. So if you, you often hear Lucifer, right? But Lucifer is mentioned one time, and this is actually, uh, it's a um, Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Bible, and it's the, the last star. So in the video, we talked about how they use stars to kind of categorize things they talked about. So there was this star that would hang on till morning, and there's this one star that was battling the sun, was not going to go away. It was the last star. And they were saying that that last star is the devil, right? Because it's battling, 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 not going to give up, but eventually fails, right? Eventually the sun is out and you can't see that star. So this Lucifer, is a, it's the morning star. It's a title, but it's not a proper name. Another, other people might say the devil, but the devil literally means the deceiver. It's another title, right? It's not a proper name. It's the deceiver. 
Uh, one of the biggest ones people will say is Satan. But every time Satan comes up in scripture, there's actually, uh, if you look at the original language, there's the word the in front of it. The Satan. Again, it's not a proper name. Nowhere in the Bible does Satan have a proper name. That should give us a clue to how much power he really has. There's influence, and he can aggravate, and he can stimulate the mind, but but he doesn't have the ultimate authority. That belongs to Jesus Christ. That belongs to our God, our Heavenly Father, right? But the name, the Satan, is the accuser. So there's these two prominent names that I want to unpack, the devil and the Satan, the deceiver and the accuser. And if you break these down, we can see some of these strategies that I'm talking about, right? So if there's a tendency for us, if we're going to fall into sin, there's these strategies that the devil, the Satan uses. And one of them, if we highlight the devil, the deceiver, it's this temptation, right? If he's deceiving us, he's, he's, he's tempting us. He's, he's trying to fool us. He, it generally involves us being puffed up with pride, right? And there's some ways he does this. One of the things he does this is he, he hides God's holiness, right? So by doing this, he, he hides God's holiness. He, he, he shows us the bait and hides the hook. So this is one that if you're thinking, if, if the, uh, the deceiver is using this to deceive you, you would see, okay, uh, well, there's that, that big old pile of donuts. <laughs> and it's going to taste really, really good. And I'm going to go and I'm going to eat all of them. And later I'm going to be sick. But before I eat those donuts, I don't know I'm going to be sick. Right? That's the bait with the hook being hidden. And I don't really think I have to unpack that because it's that immediate gratification. I think this is one that we've all experienced where we've, said we've fallen into temptation because we saw the joy, we saw the, the fun, we saw what, that immediate happiness, that satisfaction that would happen and we ignored the consequences until we felt them later. So, so one of the ways he deceives us or tempts us is he hides God's holiness and he, and he shows us that, you know what? God doesn't really need me to be perfect because he forgives me. That's another way we think about it, right? We, we, we take our, uh, our sin and we rationalize it as a virtue. That's another way we think about it. So, so the way this works is I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty, right? <laughs> I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty, or uh, I'm not nosy, I'm just concerned, or I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just sociable. And, and we take our sin or whatever it is, and we disguise it as a virtue. Um, maybe making us bitter over suffering. I've made so many sacrifices today, I deserve this. I've been guilty of that one, right? It's been a hard day. I know that God doesn't want me to do this or that, but I've made all these sacrifices. I deserve this immediate gratification. Uh, maybe comparing parts, of, comparing parts of your life to another. A good example of this would be a mafia hitman, right? They're good to their mom, but they also kill people. (laughs) So there's this sense of, you know what? Well, I went to church. I go to church every Sunday, and I pray, and I read my Bible. So, you know, if I participate in this sin a little bit, it'll be okay because this part of my life is better than that part of my life, right? There's all these ways that the deceiver can puff us up with pride. And it's like, you know what? It's this, this high view of self. And it ends up leading to our destruction. But then, you, and that's the devil, right? His, the, the literal title of his name is deceiver. But then you have the Satan, the accuser. And if the deceiver is temptation, the accuser is accusation. This, this instead of puffing us up with pride, 
creates a self-hatred inside of us. It's too low a view of God and too high a view of, of our sins. If the, if, uh, the de- deceiver hides God's holiness, the accuser hides God's love. Some examples of thoughts in this process would be causing us to look at our, at our sin more at our sin than at our Savior. Uh, there's lots of parenting books out there that I've read before that talks about if you compliment your child for every time you criticize your child, they'll end up growing up and hating themselves because criticism sticks a lot harder than compliments. That in fact, if you want your child to grow up with a positive view of themselves, you need to compliment them four to five times for every time there's a critique because the criticisms stick and the compliments don't. So bringing this back to the the spiritual side of it, for every time we look at our sin, we need to look five times at Jesus, at our Savior, at what he did on the cross. Another way that this might manifest itself is causing you to obsess over past sins that have been committed and they have done damages that can't be undone. This is that regret that we can't go back and we can't change. And so our whole worldview is looking through the lens of the, the damage that's been done instead of saying that God is forgiving me and I'm able to move forward, that, that everything we do is through the lens of the self-hatred because the sins can't be undone and we elevate that over our forgiveness. Another way is making you think that uh, the troubles you're going through now are a punishment, that if, if life was good, if you were a good Christian, then life would be smooth sailing, but since life is hard, God must be punishing me, right? And that is not a good view of God because that's not, <laughs> sometimes life happens, but this has got to, we got to understand that, that, that God isn't just punishing us because times are bad. Make, another way is making you think that your, your inner struggles and the feelings that you have mean you're not a Christian because a Christian wouldn't feel that way. The truth is, this is just a, a quick list of two different ways, two different strategies that the devil or the Satan, the deceiver or the accuser uses. But the truth is, the truth is that the devil hates God. And he wants everything anti-God. And the only picture that we have in all of the Bible before God is darkness, chaos, and zero life. So the Satan, the devil's goal in our life, in our loved ones, is to take us back to absolute darkness, chaos, and death. And he will do any kind of scheme, any kind of strategy that he can use. He doesn't care. He just wants to get us back to that dark, chaotic death. So we have to understand that that's who we're fighting and that's what we're fighting. But how do we fight it? How do we fight it? The first thing is we have to have a new view. This is really, really cool. We talk about being able to see that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? This is a new view. It's a new lens at looking at life. When I'm looking at the fight that I'm having, I'm realizing that it's me and this person, are in it. me and my wife are in it together. But if we're arguing, we're, I'm not fighting against her. We need to be working together to find the solution because we're in it together. It's a new view. We need to realize that outside of this realm, there are things happening that is influencing the world. Daniel 10, 12 says that, this is really, really interesting. So Daniel, is, he's praying. There's something that's happened, and he spends tw- three weeks, 21 days, praying and fasting for the Lord to move, and it's like his prayers are hitting the ceiling. Have you ever been there? You feel like you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and nothing happens. 
And then on, the, on this last day, on, the, on day 21, Daniel's praying, and then I'll pick up in Daniel 10, 12, and it says that an angel came to Daniel, and he said, he told me, don't be afraid, Daniel. God has heard everything that you said ever since the first day you decided to humble yourself in front of God so that you could learn to understand things. I have come in response to your prayer. So, David, so Daniel's like, okay, I've been praying for three weeks, and you heard me on day one. Why have you waited three weeks to get here? Right? Like, that's my thought. Day one, you heard my prayers. For three weeks, I've been praying and felt like nothing was happening. And then it says that the, the angel is talking to Daniel. He says, the commander of the Persian kingdom opposed me for 21 days. Okay, so, but you're an angel. <laughs> you're a messenger of God. How is this Persian kingdom opposing you? Well, this would be one of those demonic forces that was seen in parallel with the human kingdoms, right? So the Persian kingdom, this is a demonic force, a fallen divine council that's opposing this angel. And there's this battle going on. The angel can't get past him. And then the angel says, but then Michael... We know Michael is one of these archangels, right? Michael is one of these divine council members. He's one of God's like primo guys. He says, one of the chief commanders came to help me because I was left alone with the kings of Persia. So there's this spiritual battle. Daniel's praying and fasting, and he has no idea that there's an angel coming to him who is then opposed by an evil force. So while he's praying and fasting, there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm that he does not know about. So what we have to understand is as believers, when we're praying and fasting, when we're battling, when we're struggling, we have to have our eyes open to know that even though we can't see it, even though we might not be able to attain it or physically know what's going on, that there is a spiritual battle going on in another realm, in another dimension that's right there around us. We see this again in 2 Kings 6, 16 through 18. Uh, Elisha the prophet, is, he's with the servant, and the servant has is, is been given this mission to go out. And the servant goes out, and he sees that this enemy army surrounded them and there's nowhere for them to go and he comes back into Elijah and you can tell he's just covered in fear he does it there's no way out he's he's beginning he sees these worldly forces come against them and he's terrified and Elisha says this don't be afraid the prophet answered those who are with us are more than those who are with them wait a minute, there's two of us. (laughs) And there's a lot of them. So what is Elijah talking about? And then it says, Elijah prayed and he prayed this, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked out and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And as the enemy came toward them, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elijah asked. And these people who are looking for Elijah end up coming up to Elijah. And he's like, oh, no, this isn't the people you're looking for, and takes them to another city. God is fighting on our behalf. There is a spiritual warfare going on that some we can't always perceive, but we have to understand that the first way we battle it is by changing our view, knowing that our Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the devil and his strategies and his schemes. We have to let this open up our our worldview so that when that temptation comes in to, to lose our temper or that temptation comes in to give back into that addiction, that we have to know that that is the devil trying everything he can to drag us back into death, darkness, and chaos. That's his goal. 
So we have to change the way we're viewing the world and know that God, that there's this realm outside of us, that it's not just me overpowering temptation, that, that, that there has to be God fighting on our behalf. So we have to change the way we view the world, but then we also have to understand that we're putting on the armor of God. And now there's been the, I've preached a message like this before. I've heard messages where they, they take this and they kind of break down this armor of God. And there's, they, they, the, there's a point for the helmet. There's a point for the sword. There's a point for the breastplate. There's a point for the belt. I'm not doing all that today. <laughs> Obviously, I've been, it's a long message, but I want you to stay with me, right? We might be over 30 minutes, but here's the deal. There's this sense and all these things that are a part of this armor, we see truth. Jesus is truth. We see righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. We talked about this the other week that that when we give our life to him, God sees us through the blood of Christ. He sees us as righteous, but it's not just that he sees us as righteous. He gives us the power to be righteous. There's peace. Guess who gives us peace? Jesus. There's faith. How do we, how do we move forward in salvation? Through faith in Christ, Jesus gives us that salvation. There's the word of God, our only weapon in the whole process. Who is that? Jesus. John 1 says that the word became flesh. The word has always been there, right? So when we look at the armor of God, all these different attributes, it's saying wrap yourselves in the arms of Jesus. Put your body, let Christ live through you. That's how we fight our battles. It's not, it's not about saying, you know what? I've got to make sure I do this, 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 this. It's being in relationship with Jesus and realize that he he has fought this battle. We saw it in the video. That they expected Jesus to come and overthrow the authorities. So they wanted to see this guy come in and take over the government. And said Jesus comes in and dies. But death does not win. See, Jesus has the power to overcome that death. What is Satan trying to do? Bring us into darkness. Bring us into chaos. And the life and blood of Jesus Christ brings us out of chaos, brings us out of darkness, gives us life. So there's this sense of our battle, our battle, the way we fight is by trusting in Jesus, knowing there's another realm and knowing that Jesus and the armies of God are fighting in that realm for us. We talked about last week that we are victorious. And the best way that we can fight this way, the best way that we could turn it over to Jesus, the best way that we could turn it over to God is through prayer. That's the way Paul ends this passage. It's what Daniel is doing. It's what Elijah is doing. All these ways that these people are fighting, it's through prayer. The very last verse in today's passage Paul says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. That means when you're at work. It means when the kids are on your nerves. It means when you can't get along with your spouse. It means when the boss is getting on your nerves. You're always praying in all kinds of prayers and requests. You're pleading with God. You're in relationship with Jesus, having a conversation with him. I heard one pastor illustrate it as like a water gun of prayer, like a Holy Spirit water gun, right? And he'd be at work and he'd have his gun, a water gun. It was not real. He wasn't pointing at his finger and shooting people. Please don't do that. But like he would let the Spirit guide him. And as he's walking through, let's say Kroger, and he'd see this person, he'd feel like the Holy Spirit would say, pray for him. In that moment, he doesn't get on his knees. He doesn't pray out loud, but he says in his prayer, Holy Spirit, be with that person, right? Or when you think about your spouse in the middle of the day, Lord, uh, encourage encourage them, lift them up. Or if you've got a loved one who is far from God, you say, Lord, draw them near to you, right? As it comes into your mind, you, you say it there in your, in your head. You, instead of letting the evil spirits kind of aggravate or persuade that thought, you give it over to God, you surrender your life, and you live through prayer. One of my favorite examples of this is the movie War Room. I don't know if you've seen it, but this lady, she, she's uh, 
basically at the end of her marriage. And her husband has, according to our scripture today, fallen in love with these other gods. The spiritual realm of money, of sex, of power. And their marriage is at the end, but she gets discipled. And instead of fighting her husband, she creates this war room, this prayer closet, where she spends time in and time out praying, praying, fighting spiritually, fighting in the other realm where the real power, where the real battle is going on. Not fighting her husband, but fighting the devil on her husband's behalf through Jesus Christ. She's praying and she's praying and she's praying. And we eventually see in the movie, we see God work in a miraculous way. We see God come in, change, change the husband's heart. There's some, some tragedies, some bad things that happen, and it's all pointing to Jesus. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he fights on our behalf and it appears as though death has won. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And the blood of Jesus has the power of the creator to bring life out of darkness, to bring us out of chaos. So I want to close with this. Paul says in verse 13, it says, Therefore, put on the armor of God, so that when the day of the evil one comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after everything, stand. He's saying that through Jesus, through prayer, through spiritual warfare, through having a new lens, through looking at it the way it's supposed to be, you can expect victory. You can expect to be victorious. You can expect to win. Death, darkness, chaos do not have the final word. You will win. You will be victorious. Maybe not today, maybe tomorrow. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe it'll be in heaven or in the new earth as we talked about last week. But here's the deal. If it's not good, God is not done. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what the battle looks like in your life, but I do know that Jesus is victorious, that we know the end of the book. We know that the devil does not win. We know that Jesus died on the cross and that we can expect victory. So let's live lives, let's live lives facing the real enemy and battling it through the life of Jesus in prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, first off, that you're relational, that you want to be in relationship, that you give us authority on earth, that you've given us this free will. And Lord, we repent of times that we've tried to be our own gods and we've had our own fall. Lord, we know that the the devil, the Satan, he's this deceiver, he's this accuser, and he wants everything he can do to drag us into chaos and darkness. But your life and your death on the cross has given us victory. And I pray that we, even though when times are hard, even when we see temptation or we feel the accusation of the deceiver or the accuser, Lord, that we will know that that is not truth, that you are truth and we can live through prayer, we can live through your lens, we can see life through your lens. Give us the power to be a people that, that is not afraid that we don't overstate or understate the spiritual realm, that we know that you are fighting on our behalf. I'm reminded of the, the story of Exodus, Lord, where the God, your people are fleeing Pharaoh and you tell them they need not be afraid, but stand still. Lord, we do not need to be afraid because you are fighting on our behalf and we are victorious. We cry out to you in these situations. We want to fight our battles by saying your, screaming your name, singing your name, by giving you the glory and showing people your love. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.